Psalm 22 is perhaps only rivaled by by Isaiah 53 in its description and presentation of a crucified Lord. Uh, In fact, it is quoted by Christ himself on the cross. And as we're going to see, really the first half of this chapter really deals um, extensively with what was going on there on the cross. And while it would be simple for us to simply say, well, I'm familiar with that, I'm familiar with Christ's crucifixion, uh, and uh, we have the gospel accounts of that that we are very familiar with, and that certainly that is the uh, sufficient, and, and it's easy to become lax in not only evaluating these passages, but also just in the consideration of their importance and of their impact upon us that we do not come and uh, with a uh, attitude that this is something I've already known and accepted, um, but rather that we come to reconsider the great cost of our salvation upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The focus of the passages you will see as we read, of course, we might think of, well, is particularly of his suffering, and that is going to be described in detail, which is incredible, considering that the invention of crucifixion was still hundreds of years away. And yet it is perfectly described here in this passage like Isaiah. And so we come to this, and we're going to be reading... Uh, and it's going to feel like we're kind of going to stop in a strange place, but uh, we're going to uh, read really just the first 21 verses together. I invite you to follow along as I read. For the end, set to the dear of the dawn of Psalm of David. Um, and really, uh, if I was going to be consistent, it should be a song for the morning, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. 
Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, and the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Well, as we walk through this, we are confronted with, well, where where are we in the crucifixion? And we are immediately represented and know when this psalm takes place. If we go into into the Gospels, we see in the account that this was spoken by a Lord, and I'm convinced that while only really the first voice, the first verses of this are uh, heard, that the entirety of the psalm is either implied or rehearsed by Christ to the Father while on the cross. This is where we are. We are entering verse 1 where Christ has already been crucified. He is hanging on the cross. He has just become sin for you. That is where we enter this psalm. For he is hanging on the cross, naked and, and ripped apart, carrying your sin, for darkness has covered the earth, and it is then that these words come out of our Savior's mouth. They are misunderstood by the listeners, but we don't misunderstand them. Did the listeners know Psalm 22? Yes, it was in their law and prophets. It was there. The Psalms were there. He was quoting Scripture and they didn't pick it up. They, they didn't even pick up that he was referencing God himself. They were that disconnected. And that bloodthirsty for Christ's death. And so that's where we are. We are not at Gethsemane. We are past that. We have seen that in other Psalms. We are, we are not in the trial period where he is thrashed and and beaten and, and spat upon, where his beard is torn off his face. We are, we are not any of that. We are well beyond that. We are not on the Via Dolorosa. We are not on the way of suffering. We are not there. He is not carrying a cross. He has been hanging on it for some time, and he is nearing death. For that is when the darkness covered him. And that is where this psalm begins. And so we have this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are far from helping me and from the words of my groaning. We often recognize the visual separation that darkness entailed, that that was God turning away from Christ as Christ became your sin, my sin, Uh, We often understand the visual nature of that. We don't often think about the audible nature of that, that Christ was recognizing that while his father's face turned away, whenever God's face is turned away from you, your prayers are not being heard. That is the condition. When God says, I'm going to turn my face away, he says this to Israel many a time, that because of your unrepentant attitude, because of your sin, because of your lack of remorse, because of your, your commitment to do whatever is right in your own heart, I will turn my face away. That's not just a visual separation. It is a separation complete. It is entire. And thus the prayers of people in that condition are not heard. Christ understands this when he cries out, my God, or Eli, Eli, uh, and that's when you go to the Gospels, you will not see it in this. You'll see it in a different language. Um, 
Lama Sabachthani, that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting out of this very verse. Why are you not hearing my prayer? Why are you not attentive to my needs? Why are you not here to help? You see, it wasn't just a visual barrier between Jesus Christ and the Father. It was a complete barrier between Jesus Christ and the Father because he carried your sin upon his person. And so the agony of that supplants really all the physical agony. He's going to reference it throughout this description of what's going on to him. And, and certainly he is describing things that are obviously a crucifixion and, and, and are details that are just unfathomable. And some people will say, well, the apostles made that all up to fit this passage. Um, but that is just not possible. How can they, they didn't create crucifixion. That was a Roman invention uh, that far what was in place far before any of the apostles were on the scene. Um, this is clearly a prophetic statement of preparing the way and with an expectation that if I were a follower of Jesus Christ while he walked the earth and he says, this is what's going to happen to me and after three days I'll rise again, that I can go to the Psalms, I can read this, I can go to Isaiah 53, I can read that and I can know what's going to happen this man is going to be crucified because what this verse, these verses describe is a crucifixion. And they'd witnessed those by then. David had never witnessed a crucifixion. And so as Christ cries this out, he is in the dark. He is fully crucified. He's going to describe what has already happened to him and his condition. But we are immediately confronted with a very startling and disturbing fact, and that is that the Father and the Son, for the first time in all eternity and for the last time in all eternity, are separated from one another entirely. How can two, how can these who are three are, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, how can three who are one, and we are so focused on the triunity of, Christ, of God, that how can that possibly be? And I tell you, it is a complete impossibility, but so is Jesus Christ and God incarnate. And that's why it can only be the action of God that is being described here. But let us back up one step from that. Let's back up and recognize what my condition is if I stay in my sin in relationship to God. Because what Christ is saying here, when he became sin for man, what he is experiencing for the first time in his existence is the condition of man in their own sin. There is not just uh, that you are kind of on the outskirts of heaven somehow or on the outskirts of God and, and within earshot of him, that somehow your sin can be overcome eventually if you do enough good things that so you can outweigh them. No, none of that is true. And there isn't a spiritual activity that you can engage in to get rid of any of that sin. That's not true either. Christ here is very clear that God is not hearing his prayer. Wow, how can that be? But we're convinced that if we're religious, God has to pay attention to our religious activity. He certainly has an attendance book of heaven and knows that I haven't missed Sunday school for however many weeks, years, decades. Well, that's just not the case. 
I don't care how many confessionals you've gone to. I don't care how many religious activities. I don't care how many times you've crawled to Chimayo. None of that is of any matter. For your sin has separated you from the Father entirely. He has turned his face away from you completely. And this, when Christ experiences that on the cross and screams this out so loud that everyone heard that, and I, and that's why I'm convinced the rest of us probably under his breath because crucifixion takes your breath away. And it would have been excruciating for him to get his diaphragm raised, which means he had to stand on his nails, feet, to get his diaphragm enough to yell this one phrase. But the rest I'm sure is on, in his mind, on his heart, perhaps on his lips, below the audible level of those nearby. This is the condition of man in their sin. Do not be confused. What happened to Christ on the cross in those days, in those hours, I'm sorry, in those hours, is the condition of man in his own sin who clings to his sin and thinks somehow that at any point that he can just turn to God and God has to be readily available. The fact is, is that God isn't going to hear your prayers. I don't care how confessional they are. I don't care how many people hear it. I don't care how sincere you are. That if you try to do that by your own merit and by your own interests, that God does not hear. For you are a forsaken one. Your sin has, pro has produced a barrier between you and God that is insurpassable by you in any way. And that is what we often neglect to see in this passage. We apply it to Christ. We say, oh yeah, Christ was separated from the Father. It was excruciating. All of those things I already shared. We're going to develop even further. But we forget somehow to apply that to the position of man who is in sin. That we have not just a little distance from God, we should understand that, that outside of the offer of Christ, you are completely forsaken by God. God has no obligation to you. Zero. You've, you've stuck to your sin. You have, you have lifted yourself up in pride. You think that somehow you can do things that, that will impress God that he'll let you in the back door. There is no such thing. He has forsaken those who remain in their sin. That is why when Christ comes, He says, I am the way, the truth, life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. There is no other way. But please listen to that. No one can come to the Father. That is the condition of man from birth on. For we are saddled with our Father's sin, and we are saddled with our own sin of commission as we grow. This is the condition of man. We cannot, cannot, and you know I use that term very carefully, not we won't, not that we will not, we cannot come to the Father. Why? Not because you're not interested, but because God has forsaken you. Because you cling to your sin and your pride. In your arrogance to think that somehow our religious activity is equivalent to Christ's sacrifice on the cross is a heinous thought. 
What arrogance. No wonder you can't come to Christ. You can't come to the Father because you've rejected the sacrifice of His Son. And therefore, there is only one way. But that one way requires something else, and that is to understand that in our sin state, we have zero access to the Father. And He is not looking for you. That's frightening. What does it mean to be forsaken? He's not listening for you. His ears aren't tuned to you. This is what Christ endured. And so when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you far from helping me? Why aren't you hearing me? I'm crying out and you do not hear. Verse 2 makes it very clear that God is not listening. And that should disturb you. If he's not listening to his only begotten son, because he has become sin, your sin, what makes you think he's going to listen to you when you stay in your sin? To me, if I stay committed to my sin. If I keep carrying my own sin and think that somehow I will undo it, I will pay for it myself. And whether that is, you think that you can do that in this life, or you think somehow that you can do that in the future, and the whole concept of purgatory, I'm going to pay for my own sin, is evil. You cannot be done. If it could be done, then we would have to undo almost all of Scripture and just toss it out. And that's essentially what men have done while keeping lip service to it. They have destroyed its entire message. When you keep possession of your sin and said, I will deal with it, and God will be sufficiently satisfied by how I deal with my sin, Please listen to it. You're keeping that sin on you. And in that condition, God won't hear you. God has forsaken you. God won't look upon you. God won't consider you. And until we get verse 1 and 2 of this chapter understood that when Christ, that happened to Christ, it's because he became your sin. And that means that before Christ, in your sin, that was your condition. Let there be no misunderstanding here. Don't miss this primary point that when Christ becomes sin, it is your sin, it is my sin, the sin of the world, and if this happens to him, what in, the, what, what in any of your imagination do you think you can avoid this condition? That somehow you can handle your sin, that you can deal with it man's way. And man's way is sometimes very religious, but it's always man's way. It's based upon our merit. I pray these things, I do these things, I, I blah, 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 and, and it's, I, I jump in the water, I, I jump out of the water, I, I hogwash. You are forsaken by God. He is not listening to any, he's not watching any of it. And Jesus Christ rightly describes the Pharisees as what? You are the blind leading the blind. Why? Because you're in complete and utter darkness, for God has forsaken you because of your sin. And so when Jesus Christ utters these words on the cross, and for the first time he experiences what is, unfortunately, the norm of mankind, it is shocking to his system. 
And he cries out these words, Why have you forsaken me? Why is your help so far from me? Why are I'm groaning and you don't hear it? You're not listening to my prayers. There's nothing I can do. All I can do is cry out in the daytime and in the night season. I'm not silent. I'm not going to stop. This is the this is the cost of sin. This is your condition, your relation with God. If you want to cling to your sin and say, I'll deal sin my way. I'll get rid of it my way. You want to hold to any philosophy, any religion who encourages you in that direction, then you are forsaken. God is not hearing your prayers. God is not attentive to your needs. He does not hear your groanings. None of that. You are in darkness. Number two, we come to the next section, and that is, but God's holy. And we are discovering why. Why is it that Jesus hung in the dark and cried out? It was misunderstood by the people around us. He's crying for Elijah. Let's see if that happens. They didn't understand. He was crying to El, and El is the name of God. My God. So either Christ is speaking the truth or he's a liar and you can't trust, there's no reason to trust in him, but he's crying out that his God Father forsook him, was not listening to his prayers, was not there to help, um, that he was on his own. What a catastrophic circumstance. But yet that is the condition of man, their sin. And one of the reasons for that is because God is holy. We talked about that last Lord's Day night. And we come to this and we find that God, but you are holy. God is perfect. He is set apart. And we have brought God down so far in our estimation of him that somehow we think we can wag our little crooked fingers at him and say, how can you turn your back on me? Look at all the things I've done for you. And we think we can accuse God of being unloving or, or unreasonable, um, but we forget, because <laughs> we don't know this verse, He is holy. He is perfection. He is set apart. He is distinct. And your sin demands that He forsake you. And Christ on the cross, but you are holy. And this is the beginning of his demonstration to us of what needs to occur for our sin to be resolved. For Christ will resolve your sin on the cross. Do you realize that? He resolved it there. He paid the price of death but he resolved the relational aspect of it as well on the cross, and then the Father heard him. So it's going to come to resolution, even in this psalm. But it begins here by Christ not only stating, well, here's the obvious condition now, an experience that I've never had. I am broken off from the Father. I have zero access to him for the first time ever, and it is startling. But then comes the realization, well, I have become the world's sin. 
And God is holy. And that means I have to come to him on his premise. I have to come to him on his standard. I have to come to him on his design. I have to come to him with in his way. And that's why we talk about the necessity of humility. The statement that God is holy um, is me retracting my bony accusative finger, crooked one, and realizing God's holy and I am far from that. I deserve to be forsaken. I deserve to have my prayers never heard. I deserve to have zero help from God. That is what I have earned. That is what I deserve. And that is where it ends. God is holy and I am not. I am, woe is me, I am done, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. Until we get to that understanding, um, we will never come to God in the humility that is required of us. And so Christ takes us through this journey that God is holy. All right, now I have to submit myself to him. I have to recognize that rightly am I separated from God because he is holy and I am carrying sin. And yes, that was something Christ had to resolve on the cross for those hours of darkness. He resolved it. If you think that he just sat up there and only quoted one verse out of this and never uh, worked his way through the rest of this passage, um, he, he didn't go into a coma up there. He was alert and vividly aware of what was going on, and I'm convinced because he starts us in this psalm that he will end this psalm on the cross. In his speech, perhaps, but certainly in his spirit and mind. He's recognizing the necessity of being cut off from the Father and the weight of that because God is holy. And then he is enthroned in verse 3. God is enthroned in the praise of Israel, and that brings us to the concept of kingship. To be enthroned is to be made king. How is God made king? in your life. How is he enthroned? And it says through the praises of Israel. In Romans we find out that uh, how do you get how does one get saved? Well he has to believe in his heart and confess it with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. That we have to believe certain things, but we also have to speak these things and even speak them out loud. For God is enthroned. He is made king in our lives by our speech. That we are in our humble state of recognizing His holiness and our sin, we come to Him and we come enthroning Him, making Him king in the praise of Israel. And those who would say, oh, you're going to have Jesus as your Savior, and then later on you'll have Him as your Lord, maybe, but that's not necessary. Um, don't understand the nature of salvation and who Jesus is. If He is not king, He is nothing. For you've not surrendered yourself to Him. You want to be king of yourself and having Jesus as your, as your side savior? No, I don't think so. He is enthroned in the praises of his people. And so he is made king in Israel um, by their praises. That is that they are recognizing his holiness and by his praises they are saying, we will do things your way, your king. This is a statement of submission. 
You see, Christ didn't just submit at Gethsemane, where he says, not my will, but yours be done. We have studied that in past Psalms. But now he is fully submitted on the cross. And even in this condition of darkness and of complete separation from his Father, he is recognizing, okay, the Father is holy. He's going to be enthroned in the praises of his people. He needs to be king. This is the resolution of sin, is when we bring God into our lives and say, he will be enthroned by my confession of Christ as my Lord and Savior. He goes on, he says, our fathers trusted in you, they trusted in you, delivered them, they cried to you and were delivered, they trusted in you and were not ashamed. So we have the full processes and we, we find this here. So I begin by acknowledging that God is holy, I am not. I realize the necessity of, of surrendering myself entirely to him, making him my king. And then I remember that God is faithful and God does wondrous things that I do not deserve. And one of those things is that I cry out, he will deliver. And that statement, that word, if I trust in him, and our fathers did, so they had a history, you trust in the Lord, he'll deliver you. I'm not trusting in my activity. I'm not trusting in my spirituality. I'm not trusting in my religious works. I'm not trusting that I can do enough good things to undo my good or my evil. No, I am completely trusting in the Lord. I will not trust in my own heart. I will not trust in my own reasoning. I will trust in the Lord alone. It has, and that is the only means of deliverance. That is the resolution of sin, is to trust in the Lord above. Do you trust in Christ? This is the measure of dealing with sin. And Christ did that on the cross, and he recognized God's holiness. He recognized the necessity that he is king. And it's interesting that in the passage of Philippians 2, where he says he humbled himself, became a servant in the point of death, and then God, the king, can highly exalt him. We all want the exaltation based upon a meritocracy, right? because I earned it, because I deserve it. Because we've been taught that, that somehow through merit you should succeed. And that is really a pride issue. And it's wrapped up in even old-fashioned sayings. Oh, that's a man who pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. Well, that's pretty much impossible. I've tried it. I've grabbed shoelaces. I've even gotten boots with those really heavy shoelaces, and I've tried to pull myself up, and it doesn't work. We use that phraseology, though, to describe merit. That he did it his way, and his way worked, and he was, all of his success is based upon his own effort, energy, skill, talent, determination. And we think somehow we can apply those principles to sin instead of trusting in the Lord. And he says, trust in the Lord. And that it will bring deliverance. Cry to him in that act of humility, and that will bring deliverance. Trust in him, and that will make you unashamed. For sin is shameful. It is horrific because our world today isn't ashamed of sin at all. And that's why they are forsaken by God. I say, how can God exercise the wrath that is described in Revelation uh chapter 7 and following, how can God keep pouring that out and pouring that out and then for all eternity have them in the lake of fire? How can that be? Because they 
have celebrated evil instead of being ashamed of it. And it's the removal of shame that keeps people in that condition of being forsaken by God. I have been taken to task by many over my lifetime as a young parent. Uh, oh, you shouldn't shame your children like that? Well, what they're doing is shameful. They should be ashamed of that. I have been taken to task as a foster parent. Oh, you can't ever shame these children. I was like, they did wicked things. They should be ashamed. And their shame is in my living room, standing against a wall. Oh, yeah, that's going to be life-threatening to them. Now we are in a society that I can't walk up to someone and say what you're doing is sin and error. Oh, oh you, you hurt my feelings. I'm taking, go arrest him. That's hate speech. Because we are afraid of shame. Because of our pride. And that is why so many overwhelmingly are forsaken by God. Please understand, these friends, these co-workers, these neighbors, they are not just on the outskirts of God's attention. They are forsaken by God, for they feel no shame over their sin. The only ones that should be unashamed are those who have trusted in Christ, for he has promised us that we should never be ashamed. Well, there's only one place where shame really matters, and that is in God's presence. That when I stand before the throne of God, and all men will, whether they are good or evil, all men will one day stand before the throne of God. They will all be resurrected. We've talked about that in the past. We will all answer, and we who have trusted in Christ, it says, will not be ashamed. For we're not trusting in our own merit, our own uh, accomplishments, we are just looking around and saying, Jesus, <laughs> he's my savior. He took my sin. He was crucified one day. It was paid for. And I've inherited God's righteousness. And there will be no shame for those who have trusted in Christ. But those who have not trusted and have not been delivered, shame is all they will have in the process of becoming a Freemason. Uh, one of the questions they ask you is, when you stand before God at the great white throne, what will you answer him? I was a good Mason. You know what? They'll be too ashamed to say that. Because by the great white throne, they're in trouble, aren't they? Because the only ones that are answering at the great white throne are those who will be ashamed and will be going into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And yet they say that as an entry into one of their lodges. Think of that. You see, there's no shame today, for they will be greatly ashamed one day. But for we who understand and let the weight of shame humble us and bring us to our knees so that we can say, oh, there's no way I can get rid of this. This is so shameful what I've done. And that's why Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners. I don't even know what to do about it. 
but praise God that he sent Jesus Christ to become sin for me, and I trust in him to take my sin away. And with it, not only its penalty of death, but the shame of it is gone. And this, in a nutshell, becomes the gospel. And we come to verse 6 and we go back to Christ on the cross. And we find his condition and we see how despised he is by the world. And we are uh, understand the nature of this. That in men's eyes is really where we're picking up verse 6. I'm a worm and no man. They're not treating me with the dignity of, of humanity. Surprise. I just cannot even conceive today the evil that is being perpetrated against men by men. And they give them no dignity. And it doesn't matter their age or accomplishments. That when every coup happens, we take the bodies that we've tortured and mangled and drag them through streets and hang them on walls and, and dismember them and do all of these heinous things to humans just proving that we aren't human. That's why we call it inhumane treatment. Because you're not acting like a, a, a human. You act like an animal. Or worse, a demon. And don't think it's just those violent people. Last night I was watching through a series of confessions. But they weren't confessions. They were very proud of what they were doing. And here is a very famous actress saying, well, what's your secret to beauty? Oh, I have microneedling. Well, now I have to know what microneedling is, don't I? I don't know what microneedling is. Now I wish I didn't know what it was. It's inhumane. Now you want to know what it is, only so you don't want to know what it is. This is what wealthy people are doing. They're taking these little micro micro needles that are on a roll, and they roll them over their skin, and it makes little tiny little punctures in their skin. But those needles aren't just pins. They are needles. They're injecting something just underneath their skin. Um, and the question was, well, what are they injecting? What are they injecting? What are they injecting? And it comes out that this is... The skin of infants. Their claim it was from the foreskin of Korean babies. That's what they are willing to admit. Let me share with you, there is no humanity in humanity. So when Christ says they're going to treat me like a worm and no man, the world is already there and has long been there. Because they're inhumane. They have no compassion. Their looks are more important than children's blood. Infants. Christ says, they are, I'm a worm. I'm a reproach of man. I'm despised by the people.
If we jump forward to verse 16, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. The reason he can count all of his bones is because they are exposed. The inhumanity of what we can perpetrate against one another is mind-boggling. We don't just have to go into the Middle Ages to see what they did in torture chambers because they're very real today, what's going on. Because men aren't civilized. They are wicked, evil, and conceive evil all the day long. And Christ experienced that. He experienced that utter humiliation in all the inhumane things that would be that man would do against man. And so he endured that for you and for me, the completely innocent one. I know we talk about babies being innocent and that sense of, of not having done good or evil, that is true. Um, but this is the completely innocent one, not even with the sin of, of a human father attributed to him and being viewed as less than human by those. And that's the only way they can do what they do against them is to treat them less than human. And we have seen that through every horrible time when men have treated other men inhumanely is they always have to degrade them to being less than human. And don't think Americans don't do the same thing. We simply say that a fetus isn't human. And then we can do whatever we want to it. And we can sit there and complain about the, the Nazis saying the Jews weren't really human. And that's the only way you can do to them what they do and, and not go completely crazy is to degrade their humanity. And this is what they did to Christ. They degraded his humanity that he was less than human. It's the only way they could do what they did to him and, and still cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children because they made him a worm instead of the Son of God. You see, the Jews were good at that because any, if you weren't a Jew, they had a word for you, and that's a dog. And when he goes and says, the dogs have surrounded me, he's saying, I am encompassed by Gentiles. And certainly we see the Gentilian aspect of his crucifixion for the Roman Empire was the authority by which it was done um, but it was the mob of Pharisees and their family that are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. I'm pretty sure the family members of the Pharisees were the loudest. To attack the one that exposes their own. And then they ridicule his faith. In verse 7, Back, back up into verse 7, they ridicule his faith. And yes, when you trust in Christ, men will ridicule your faith. And they will put it to the test. They'll say, oh, let's see if you can. And, and again, because of their ignorance, because of their foolishness, because of their uh, own pride and arrogance, they declare these things. And the shaking of the head is a, is a way of, of disavowing someone. And their statement is, he trusts in the Lord, let him rescue him. We want to see Elijah come and take him off the cross. Let's see, he's calling out for Elijah. Let's just see if uh, it's going to happen. 
What arrogant fools. Soldiers knew this was a righteous man. They were startled by the events of the cross. These events of the darkness. This is unusual. The way we know when Christ died, the best measure of it happening in 31 uh, A.D., was not even because of this. It's because it was dark over the whole earth. And the Chinese recorded it. And they knew one man has died for the people. It's in Chinese records. And yet, those who should have been closest and, and, and were the most blind, the ones who had the most revelation, the most truth, the most scripture, were the most wicked. And they ridiculed him and says, oh, we are not, let's just see. They didn't understand what he was saying. They couldn't connect it to this verse, to this passage. They were so self-righteous in their own estimation that they literally made fun of him. There's no compassion. There's no empathy. There is no uh, realization. Oh, man, we've made a big mistake. No, none of that. They're going to compound their inhumane desire with inhumane speech. And Christ rehearses this. And again, in verse 9, we have this repeated but. Just like in verse 3, now we come to verse 9, and we're going to go back and forth from the, from the condition of the suffering servant, the condition of our Savior on the cross, the condition of men and their sin, we're going to be going back and forth, and then the condition of the world versus his people, and now we go back to God. But you, Lord, you took me out of the womb. You made me trust while my mother's womb. I was cast out from, upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And again, we find him going back to God. God not only as the Holy One, that I must surrender to, that I must make king of my life. But now in my Christian walk is a recognition that God is my creator and sustainer. He is the one to whom I owe my entire life. And I've foolishly wasted so much of it already, whether it's eight years or ten years, if you're a child, or twenty or thirty or fifty or sixty years. God died for you when you were a sinner. He's called you out. He has asked, invited you to salvation. He is your creator and sustainer. He is the one that you owe life to in every sense. And it is ridiculous not to think that you have to go to him for eternal life. To get a new life. He is the originator of your life. He is the creator of life itself. And so we go to that, that he is the one. He is the creator. He is the above all. He is, is to him that we ought to be dedicated in our entirety. And certainly the application of Christ is very clear here that Christ from the womb was without sin. But we are not of that condition. But, he is, but God is still our Savior. God is still our creator. God is still our sustainer. And so Christ followed after his father from before his birth while still in the womb. He followed after his Savior as an infant. He followed, I'm sorry, his father as an infant. He followed after his father as a preteen. He followed after his father as a teenager. He followed after his father through all those raging 20s. 
and he followed his father for three years of ministry until it required him to follow after his father to the cross. He says, I have cast myself upon you from the very beginning. I am here to do your work because you so love the world that you wanted to give them me. That whoever believes in me, in Jesus Christ, shall have eternal life. And so we come back to the Father and, and we are we, we look at that and says, He is our only help. He is our only hope. In Him I will trust. And so as I trusted in Christ and humbled myself to His holiness and received His deliverance by, by, and, and, the, and the, being unashamed by trusting in Him, so now as I walk in Him and I face ridicule of this world, I go again to Him and I said, I will trust in You from the beginning to the end. I will trust in You entirely. I will follow You no matter who is opposed to me. No matter what it costs me, I will follow you. We come back again, having visited now the solution, the solution to the ridicule of men, to the wickedness and inhumanity of men against men, is God. God is the solution. Politics aren't the solution. More laws aren't the solution. The court system isn't a solution. None of that is a solution. Violence isn't a solution. The only solution is that we trust in the Lord with all our heart and we will follow Him. We, have, we will be cast upon Him. That is a passive sense that we will just rely on God when we encounter the trouble of this world. We come to verse 12 and following. And again, we see a strong description of the circumstances of the crucifixion, and we recognize these. We recognize the physicality of what Christ was suffering on the cross there. Um, everything. Remember, he said, I thirst, and here it describes that my tongue is sticking to my jaw. I don't have anything to swallow even. And he cries that out on his cross. Every Everything we find happening on the cross in these last half, these last hours of the cross are stipulated out here far beyond it, including the piercing of his hands and feet, the shredding open of his body to be able to count his bones. We're not talking about how skinny he was, that you could count all his bones. We're talking about the exposure of them through the beating and scourging that he took that ripped the flesh off that you could see his bones, you could count them. This is what it cost him to take your sin. This is the agony that he endured. And let me just share with you again that connection. This is the agony that awaits those who want to hold on to their own sin. Let there be no mistake. Christ's suffering, if you reject it, becomes your suffering. You will endure that pain. because you have no recourse to resolve it, for you've rejected God's one way of resolving it, you will continue to have that pain. And that's why it's described that eternity in Lake of Fire is, is it's not going to be a bunch of friends having a party down there, and Satan is not the king of hell. It's a place of torment where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because you can't do anything about it because you've rejected the one who was 
took your pain for you. You've rejected that. You've made fun of that. You've ridiculed that. You thought you could do it yourself, and now you've held on to your sin, and it's too long, and now you have to pay the price, even though it's already been paid on the cross by Christ because you rejected that payment. You wanted to pay for it yourself, and now you will. It's not God's design, it's your choice because you clung to your sin instead of a Savior. And again, having described the pain of the crucifixion and the humiliation and the agony, we come to verse 9 and we come back to God. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. My strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then the great joy of the last phrase of this portion of Scripture, you have answered me. We began the psalm forsaken. But if we keep turning to God and keep turning to God, not based upon our merit, not based upon our plan, not based upon the, the ridiculous concepts of men, but based upon God's word, and we cry out to him, we humble ourselves, we enthrone him in our lives, we, we serve him from all our days, from our new birth on to eternity, uh, he will answer us. What a wonder. I've gone from being forsaken, not just being heard. Please notice that. It's not you have heard me, it's you have answered me. Which means I've gone from being forsaken to not just having his ear, but having his embrace. And this is what the world rejects. And they will do it to their own demise. We want to water this all down. We want to water the crucifixion down to a piece of jewelry. And we do injury to it by doing that. We have cleansed it. We have cleaned it up. We have made it pretty. And in so doing, we really made sin pretty. And then we think we can hang on to it. And we can deal with it ourselves our own way. One of men's many ways they think they can deal with it. And because we've clung to our sin, we cling to its penalty. And you are forsaken. But it is when we turn to the Lord and say, Oh, hurry and help me. Deliver me. And my life, my, my precious from the power of the dog, save me. When we come to a holy, holy, holy God, humble ourselves and cry out, Save me. For I trust not in myself, nor do I love my sin any longer, but I trust in the one who suffered on Calvary's cross and took my sin upon him that I might be unashamed. This God will answer. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for sending your son to die on a cross to save us from our sin, to become our sin for us, Pay that penalty once for all, for all men, for all time. Lord, help us to see the despair 
of men around us. To understand that because they cling to their sin, they are forsaken by God. Oh, let us shed light that they might ridicule and hate, that they might be unwilling to acknowledge and despise us. But Lord, there is no other help. And as you did not leave them without a way, Lord, help us not to leave them without some truth. Give us that urgency of the lateness of this hour to communicate your gospel to those around us. And Lord, as we see them cling to their sin and be unashamed, Lord, we know their end. We are not glad. But we recognize the necessity that you are a holy God that their sin demands a punishment. And so, Lord, as we pray for your coming to come quickly, as we see the deterioration of man into more and more heinous sin, we ask how long till you come, we recognize that today is the day of salvation. That there is hope for some as you delay your coming. And we pray for them that they might humble themselves before you and trust in you that they might be saved. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.